Good morning, church. I'm Don Waybright, and I have the great joy and the privilege to be the missions pastor at Sugar Creek Baptist Church, and today speak to you about the mission of the church. Pastor Hartman is away this weekend enjoying a Sabbath rest, a much-needed Sabbath rest, and getting ready to lead us into the Christmas season. Have you ever had a drought in your life? I know I have. A desert wasteland in my soul, just this emptiness, a sense of meaningless. I ask the question, isn't there more meaning to life than this? It's this dry, barren wasteland in my soul where, you know, nothing seems real. I have no purpose. I have no meaning in my life. There has to be more to life than this. You know, those droughts are real. I've had them. Most people do. Those droughts are real, but also the rainmaker is real. And he desires to lavishly pour out the rain of his spirit into the dry desert wasteland of our souls such that a river of life is overflowing and bubbling with purpose and power. And that's what I want to talk about today is what that looks like in our life, what that looks like in the life of our church. Yes, I want to talk about the spirit walk. I want to share with you a real historical story. For three and a half years, the nation of Israel has had no rain. So this is a real drought in the land. And you can imagine without no rain for three years, there's, there's a lot of desperation now. There's exasperation. There's literally starvation taking place. And there is no visitation from the Lord. The prophets of God have been quiet. And then the word of the Lord spoke to Elijah. Go show yourself to Ahab, he said, and I will send rain on the land. And Elijah provoked a grand contest at Mount Carmel, a contest between the living God and the prophets of the traditional gods of the people, the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah. And Ahab, Elijah told Ahab to go gather those prophets and assemble the people of Israel and let's meet for this grand contest on Mount Carmel. Ahab was the king of the people, and he, he married Jezebel and forsook the God of Israel and conformed to her worldview and her worship of false gods and led all the people to do the same. Thus, the discipline of God and the drought in the land. But that was about to change. It seems as if God disciplines us in order to capture our attention so that we will repent and return and be close to him. So the prophets are assembled at Mount Carmel, and Mount Carmel is this beautiful plateau uh, protruding from a grand cliff overlooking the Mediterranean in northern Israel. It's lush with flowers and trees, and in this setting, Elijah challenged the people to quit wavering between two worldviews. If the Lord God is God, follow him. If Baal is God, follow him. So Elijah confronted the prophets of Baal and won. And the contest was whose altar and sacrifice would be consumed by fire from heaven. And the prophets of Baal were not successful. Elijah, after dousing the altar and the sacrifice three times with water, he prayed and asked God to act. And after his prayer, fire from heaven came down and consumed the altar and his sacrifice. It was so dramatic, so explosive, the word says that God literally licked up 
the altar and a sacrifice. It was so dramatic. And the people fell on their face and they cried out, the Lord, he is God. Elijah knew that the drought would now be broken. So Elijah tells Ahab, you best be getting on that chariot and heading home because I hear the distant sound of rainfall. So Elijah prays for rain and sends a messenger to go look. And this messenger, after a few iterations of this, returns and says he saw a small cloud forming out in the water about the size of a hand. And Elijah knew the rain was coming. You notice how God waits for us to pray before he acts. It's as if our prayer activates God to action. So Ahab, he, he goes home and he tells his wife Jezebel what happened. And Jezebel's furious and she says, I'm not, I'm going to get him. Nobody kills my prophets and gets away with it. So word gets to Elijah and he's afraid and he's running for his life in the wilderness. So here you have this man who had done this great, incredible exploit for God. Now he's running for his life. So he's in this wilderness, a day's journey in the wilderness, and he finds this remote tree, and he, he sits under it hoping to die. Surely, he says, I've done enough for you, Lord. You can't expect anything else from me. I just want to die here. You know, he's in the wilderness. He's in this desert, the place that he chose to be. No food or drink, scorching sun. He'll die of dehydration. That's what it's going to be. This is how it's going to be. But an angel of the Lord comes to minister to him. And he gave him food to eat and water to drink and came a second, second time to do the same. And he gave him just enough strength for a journey of 40 days and 40 nights to the mountain of God, Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai. He climbed up this mountain. It's the same place where Moses received from God the Ten Commandments. He climbed the mountain and found a cave in a rock, and perhaps it's the same cave Moses stood and saw the glory of the Lord where God showed his back to Moses as he passed by. And in that cave, God spoke to Elijah. Elijah, what are you doing here? Elijah says, I, I've been very zealous for you, Lord. I'm the only one left that loves you, and I've come here to meet with you. God said, come to the entrance of the cave, for my presence will pass by. Now, Elijah knew the story of Moses and how the Lord's back was revealed to Moses. Maybe that's what he's expecting. So he stands at the entrance, and a violent wind comes up from the valley. It's so powerful like Elijah's never seen before. It literally breaks the rocks into pieces. God had done an amazing thing in sending such a violent windstorm, and no doubt Elijah is fearful for his very life. But God did not reveal himself in the wind. And then there was an enormous earthquake and shook the very root of the mountain, the entire cave, Elijah thinking it's going to collapse any minute all around him. But God did not reveal himself to Elijah in the earthquake. And then there's a sudden fire. And it swept across the mountain and consumed all the vegetation. It says it, it scorched the rocks. But God did not reveal himself in the fire. But when everything was still and quiet, God whispered to Elijah. It was as if God said, come closer, Elijah. You're looking for me in the signs and wonders that I do. But there's something that I want you to understand that I desire for you to be close to me, close enough to hear my whisper, 
and close enough that all I need to do is whisper to get your attention. And God spoke to him in a gentle whisper. Elijah, what are you doing here? Now let's fast forward 900 years. It's a day of Pentecost in Jerusalem. The celebration of the Feast of Weeks, the first fruits of the harvest. Jews from all over the known world are gathered for the celebration. And traditionally, this is also the day they celebrate the people of God standing before the mountain of God, Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai, as God majestically displays his splendor with thunder and lightning and earthquakes and fire, and he gives to Moses the Ten Commandments, the law. It's been 50 days, been 50 days since the resurrection of Jesus. The 120 disciples are gathered in a room together. Men and women, Mary, the mother of Jesus, Peter, the brothers of Jesus, they were praying and attending to the Lord. Then suddenly a violent wind came and swept through the whole building. And it was so violent that they could not escape the fact that God was here with them. The wind was not outside the building. The wind was inside the building. God got their attention. Then fire appeared, and no doubt, they're afraid for their very lives. And as they looked at the fire, it broke into smaller pieces and touched each one of them. And as it landed on each of them, they were each filled with the Holy Spirit. And they began to speak in other languages not known to them. A great crowd gathered around them, and they began to declare in other languages the glorious, majestic works of the living God, and people could hear them. And the crowd gathered, representing people from every known nation on earth, from Cyrene and Mesopotamia and Asia and Rome, Libya and Egypt and more. And they were all amazed that every single one of them heard the gospel in their own language. Elijah saw the wind and the earthquake and the fire, and he heard the still, small, gentle whisper of God. But like all people in the Old Covenant, God was still external to him. God got his attention and spoke to him personally, but he was outside of him. God got the attention of the disciples in that upper room, but he did much more than peek speak to them personally. He entered into their lives. And the miracle of Pentecost is this. God lives in his people. A wonderful, majestic thing happened to Elijah, but God was still external. God spoke to him personally and gave him direction, but was still outside of his life. When God came with symbolic presence, with the same majestic sweeping into that upper room, he spoke to their hearts, and, and he did much more. He entered their lives. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak. God spoke to the prophets of old from the outside, and he spoke to the disciples on the inside. He spoke to their hearts, and their hearts became an instrument of his love and his power. And the miracle of Pentecost is that God does not just come to us, but he lives in us. And the heritage of every Christian here is that God lives in you. You have the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit living in you. And if you do not know God, you cannot know this presence. 
And what marks humanity, what divides humanity is not good and bad, those who believe or those who don't believe. What marks humanity is those who have God inside of them and those who have God outside of them. He's either on the inside or the outside. There is no gray. Being outside will never reveal the truth of his person, will never reveal his love. You can only know God when he's on the inside. He knows me and I know him. We only know the intimacy and the passion and the beauty of this love when he lives in us. And this is the victory won by Jesus with his cross and his resurrection. He won the victory so we can now receive God into our lives. And God lives there and speaks to us and works through us. And we don't speak about God, but we speak on behalf of the God that lives in us. We don't come up with vain theory and philosophies, but we speak that this is what God is doing in my life. This is my witness. This is my experience. This is my Lord, not some external Lord far off, but he lives in me and he is empowering my life with beauty and purpose and his kingdom is coming alive in me and through me. The Holy Spirit is the person of God the Spirit of Jesus. And the Holy Spirit in us fulfills the prophecy of the ancient days where God said, I will replace their stony hearts with a heart that is mine, a heart of flesh, and I will place my very own spirit inside of them so that they can obey my laws and my decrees. The Holy Spirit in us is our power for living, our power for loving. And how do we receive this power? It's a free gift from God, and we receive it by faith. And by faith, we surrender control of our lives. By faith, we believe in his victory for us, for us at the cross and the resurrection. By faith, we turn from our sin. We turn to God, and we ask him for this life. And he's always faithful to enter our life. And when he does, we are born again. We are made brand new by the Holy Spirit, recreated. We now become the beloved children of the living God. And we're sealed by the Holy Spirit. At that time, we're sealed by the Spirit of Jesus forever, for all of eternity. And nothing can separate us from this reality, this love of God. Yet the same way we receive this new life, we need to remain in it by faith. Galatians 5.25 says, The Spirit lives in you. Now walk in the Spirit. The Spirit lives in you. Now walk in the Spirit. That means obey the Spirit. Jesus came to give you life, give it to you abundantly, a life that's overflowing, yet it's not about you and me. It's all about him. And when a spirit of truth lives in us, we no longer look at this book, this Bible, the same way. We don't look at it as it's all about me and my life. We don't open it up like it's a high school yearbook and I'm looking what it says about me. No, 
when a spirit of truth lives in us and is guiding us into all truth, we come to the reality that this book is 66 books written by 40 different authors in three different languages over a span of 2,000 years, yet it's one cohesive book, one cohesive story of his glory from Genesis all the way to Revelation, a story of his glory. It's not about me. It's all about him. It's his story. And what does it say? It says we are blessed with the Spirit of God inside of us to be a blessing to the nations. So the nations will bless him. We are filled with the Spirit not to consume but to produce the fruit of the Spirit. We are filled with the power of the Spirit to be a witness, to testify with our very lives, to be the display of his glory and his holiness and the salt and light in this region and to the nations. The very presence of the living God is in us to make disciples of all nations. The word there is pentateethne, all people groups, all ethnic people groups. Make disciples of all ethnic people groups, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach them to obey all that I commanded you. We are made brand new by the Spirit of Jesus to be ambassadors to represent Jesus on earth. You know, at the missions banquet a, a few years ago, we had a guest speaker, Eric Ludy. He gave a brilliant and beautiful illustration of the reality of the Spirit in us and our responsibility when the Spirit dwells within us. See this glove? Sitting here on the table, it's uh, just an empty glove. Empty glove has no power to do anything, no purpose. Uh, it just sits there. Can't accomplish the thing on its own. It has no utility. Go pick up that, that book, glove. Do it. Come on. It, it can't do a thing on its own. But when the hand comes into it, it gives it power to direct it based on what the hand wants it to do. We are the church, are this glove, the empty glove. And when the invisible hand comes into us, the Holy Spirit comes into us, we have power to do what the Holy Spirit directs us to do, the impossible, the magnificent, marvelous works of God on earth. Uh, apart from the Spirit of Jesus, we can do nothing. We just flap. Apart from him, we can do nothing. But not by my might, nor by my power, but by the Spirit, says the Lord. We have power as a church. That's who we are. God's formed us as a church, a community, a spirit-led, spirit-empowered community, one living stone upon another. And our God is a God of mission. A God of mission has a church in the world, and we have a unique role He's called us to a unique role and unique task as we walk in the Spirit. And what does a church look like when it walks in the Spirit, when it does the Spirit walk? I could tell you many threads of powerful stories of kingdom breakthroughs as we surrender and yield to the direction and the power of the Spirit. Whether it's in Bissonette, four and a half miles down the street, or Columbia, South America, or, or Honduras, or Athens, Greece, or Japan. But I want to tell you a thread today about what's taking place in North India and Nepal through the body life of our church as we submit and surrender to the Spirit Walk. In North India and Nepal, 
we see the highest concentration of lostness in the world. This map that's on the wall is the status of global Christianity, and the red dots are 50,000 people segments. And you see India and Nepal are saturated with red dots. It's the highest concentration of darkness, of lostness in the world. Every time I clap my hand, Every time I clap my hand in North India and Nepal, in that region, a person dies that has never heard the name of Jesus Christ. Yet God is doing something in that place if I told you, you wouldn't believe. In 2012, we were led by the Spirit to begin a strategy to impact the lostness of Delhi, the capital of India, with a multiplying disciple-making movement. In other words, a book of Acts type of movement. Our task was to catalyze this type of movement. And we would use the same tools, the methods, the processes and patterns that Jesus taught his disciples that are all derived from Scripture. And by the way, these are the same spirit-derived, spirit-empowered tools that we train in our three levels of gospel conversation training here at Sugar Creek. So we began in Delhi to start sending short-term mission training mission teams that would break into two-person teams. We call them Luke 10 teams. And we would follow exactly what Jesus modeled in Luke chapter 10 with our teams. We would uh, go out two by two throughout the city searching for the person of peace, the house of peace, the people of God that God has already prepared for us to encounter. We would pray for those people. We would declare the kingdom of God has come to them. We would share the gospel. They'd be baptized. We'd disciple them. We'd start modeling church for them, and they would do the same. We modeled this just the same way that Jesus modeled it in Luke chapter 10 and Matthew 9. And we modeled this for our national partners there in Delhi. Nancy Howard, Sugar Creek member. A research nurse, she was on one of these teams. She's with her national partner, Sherrod, who's also the translator. They're praying over a person in the street. Then a woman comes up to them frantic and says, please come to my home and pray for my household. So they go to her household, and before they could even pray, she tells them about a dream that she had the night before. She said, the night before I had a dream that a man and a white woman would come into my home today and teach me how to worship the one true God. They shared the gospel with her. She believed. She was baptized. She was discipled. And worship began in that home. And they worship almost every day. And the place is just packed with worshipers. People hanging from the rafters of the windows. And I call her dream lady. Her name is Usha, but I call her dream lady. After one month, she had started three more churches. I want to tell you another story. Scott Blazek, he was our team leader in in uh, Delhi, Scott Blazek, Sure Creek member, Houston police detective. I'm on a team with him as well as my wife, Teresa. We enter into another house of peace that we had been in many times before, but this time we're completely taken aback. The place is just filled with Hindu idols. There's incense burning. There's candles burning. It's covering all the walls. We ask, what is going on here? And they tell us of, they tell us the story of their Aunt Mala, what's happening. She's been in coma for two weeks. And then tomorrow, they're going to pull the plug on her. They're going to pull the life support, and the doctors fully expect her to die. So they are grieving, and they are praying and fasting. They're doing a puja, Hindu worship, praying and fasting for nine days, praying for Mala's healing. Well, Scott Blazek, he asked, has your Hindu gods answered your prayers? And they said, no. And he said, Jesus will, with boldness. 
And we prayed in the name of Jesus for Mala's healing. We prayed in faith with intensity, and the people were weeping. And at the end of the prayer, Scott said, she's healed. Mala is healed. We'll be back tomorrow to start worship to Jesus Christ and start studying the Bible together. So we're exiting the place, going out into the, the dark streets, and I, I say to Scott, I say, Scott, tomorrow, if there's not a resurrection, I'm not coming back. Well, the next day, she's healed. Mala is healed. We get word she's healed. So we go get Mala's mom. We take her to the hospital. Amen. My wife, Teresa, goes up into the woman's ward of the hospital looking for Mala. She's not in her bed. She's walking around. She finds her, starts telling the story of what took place. The place is packed with women in this woman's ward. They're all hearing this story. All of them respond to the gospel, and revival's breaking out in this woman's ward. The doctors literally had to kick her out. So me and Scott are sitting out in the courtyard. Here comes my wife. And then right behind her, Mala's following her. I said, she's supposed to be dead. And here she's walking out of the hospital. And she walks down. Let's see this picture again. She walks down, takes us down to the street, and buys us a cup of chai to celebrate her healing. These are just a couple stories of the power of the Spirit working in and through us. And in Delhi, we began to model for the new believers, obedience to the Scripture. We trained the elders. And now, by the grace of God, we exit Delhi. Mission accomplished because a strategy has been intentionally turned over to local ownership. The local churches now own the vision for Delhi. And in their network that we have modeled, trained, and equipped with our teams, they will have over 15,000 gospel shares this month. So we move on to the city of Mumbai, the cultural and financial center of India, to replicate what God did through us in Delhi. Our first trip is last fall, October of 2017. While on this trip, my wife Teresa and Kathleen Noltensmeyer, they came across a small ministry that was attempting uh, to rescue women from the red light district of Mumbai. They were making these, this ministry was making these simple little cheesy little things that would never sell in the U.S., and they asked for help. Well, Kathleen Noltensmeyer just happens to be the owner of the Sugarland Sewing School, and she also is an engineer. So her and Teresa come back, and they start brainstorming some simple patterns, some simple things that these women could make to create some type of sustainable income and some type of sustainable uh, ministry, And they go back in February with the intention of training them how to make these simple bags that we could possibly sell here. So in February, they're, they're returning, 20-hour uh, flight, they arrive in Mumbai, going through immigration, and they are detained at immigration. Their visas are revoked and permanently revoked. We've had six people now from our church that have had their visas revoked because of the gospel ministry, myself, Scott Blazek, Henry Donna Wong, and those two. And we think we figured it out, and it hasn't happened again, but their visas are revoked. They're put on the next plane back. First, they're put in a holding cell for 16 hours. They were pretty rough. 20-hour flight, 16 hours in a holding cell, another 20 hours. Look at them. They're, they're looking kind of rough. They haven't showered in a while. And... But they're basically, their plan is dead. Their plan is dead. But I want to come back to that. You know, Teresa was supposed to lead in February this gospel team, this Luke 10 team. Kathleen was supposed to be on it. 
And, uh, but they came early to train these women how to sew these bags. Now they're kicked out. They're flying back to Houston. Our, other, our rest of our team is arriving, four people. Three of them never been in India before. None of them have led a short-term trip before. Within one week of doing the gospel ministry, they had over 100 salvations, adult salvations. Woo! So while they're there in Mumbai, this team of four now, there's a people group that we call an unengaged, unreached people group. Now, a people group is a group of people, that, in this case, they number in the tens of thousands. They have their own distinctive cultural identity, their own heart language, their own mother tongue. And this particular group has no known believers. They're hostile to the gospel. That's why we call them an unengaged, unreached people group. They live in a tent city between the skyscrapers of Mumbai, and all attempts by our national leaders and partners to reach them with the gospel have been unsuccessful. Well, our team, Adrian Brown, little petite soccer mom, housewife, uh, Sure Creek member, accountant, she's partnered with this two-person Luke 10 team with Jeremy Scott, who's on our mission staff. They spontaneously pull up in a cab at the curb right by the by the tent city. Out of the tent comes this man in an orange shirt right there to the right. He comes out of his tent. He comes down to the cab. He takes a hold of Jeremy's hand, grabs his hand, and walks him up to the tent city. He gathers leaders all around, and he has Jeremy for a couple hours tell the story of Jesus' glory from creation all the way to the church age. Every single one of them gave their life to Jesus Christ. Every single one of them was baptized. Every single one of them now worship, worship the Lamb of God. There's another people group. There's another language group. There's another pentate ethne standing before the throne of the Lamb of God because of what the Spirit did in and through them. Let's go back to Teresa and Kathleen. They're flying back to Houston, remember, from Mumbai. Their dreams are squashed about helping this little ministry called Hilltop of Hope. Hilltop of Hope, we call it Hilltop of Hope because it's on a little hilltop overlooking the vast domain of this vast uh, red light district of Mumbai, the second largest uh, red light district in the world. So... What we did while they're flying on a plane, we made plans to take the leader of that little fledging ministry, his name's Pradeep, and let's take him up to Kathmandu, Nepal, because I'm going to be there in March anyway. Let's take him up there, and we can, you, you ladies, you can come up there. I know there's a sewing center owned by some Christians up there. I just heard about it. So we can use their equipment. You train them up there in Kathmandu. He can go back to Mumbai since we can't get in. He can train these ladies there. They're getting rescued out of this lifestyle. So that was our brilliant plan to do that. So at the same time we're making that plan, the Southern Baptist International Mission Board, our denominational mission agency, the largest, most effective mission agency in the world, they asked our church to become really an unprecedented role within the IMB is a strategy leader church for the lostness of Kathmandu at Nepal. To take on the lostness of Kathmandu as a church, church be the missionary to develop a plan to catalyze a movement same way we did in Delhi and we're doing in Mumbai. Well, the national leader that we met in March there in Kathmandu that we are going to work with, he's like an apostle Paul. His name is Kieran. You can see him here. There he is, Kieran in the harvest fields of Nepal. 
He just happens to be mentored and a close as a brother to the national partner that we're working with in Mumbai, who's also like an Apostle Paul. Kiran has over 900 churches throughout Nepal, mainly in the mountainous regions, the mountainous villages. But his first church that he formed in Nepal, that God used him to, to birth in Nepal, was in the darkest place of Kathmandu. It just happened to be at the sewing center with these sewing guys, these Christian sewing guys. He, he's the one that led them to Christ, and they gave their lives and surrendered to Jesus. All Jesus is putting this thing together. So these guys are in the sewing center in Kathmandu. We cast vision there in March for them to help us return the daughters of Nepal. Over 15,000 girls a year, 15,000 girls a year are trafficked out of Nepal into the red light districts of India, mainly into Mumbai. This became their passion. God had arranged all their skills and experience working in the factories around around Kathmandu for this purpose, acquiring these sewing skills. Now they use those skills for Hilltop of Hope. They pour into this ministry. They go into Mumbai and train the women in this new life skills. Hilltop of Hope was birthed. Jailbirds, come on up here. I want you to shamelessly uh, model and promote some of these bags that these ladies in Mumbai create from Hilltop of Hope Ministry. Now, these bivocational church leaders in Kathmandu, they make the more complicated bags, such as the backpacks. And then the girls rescued and restored from modern-day slavery in Mumbai, they make the simpler bags, at least until they acquire more skills, because they've been slaves all their life. They don't even have motor skills to cut with scissors. They've got to be taught these type of skills now. We market and sell these bags in the U.S., with these sales ambassadors that are rising up within our church, telling the story of rescue and restoration and justice. And every dollar of the ministry goes to these women and, and the, their children, giving them lives of dignity. These women are trained in a new life skill. They're filled and surrendered to the Spirit. They're discipled, and they go back into the dark places rescuing others. Since May of this year, when we began this ministry, Hilltop of Hope, in Mumbai Red Light District, we have seen 33 women baptized out of the Red Light District of Mumbai. I tell you, I need a bigger glove because we have a big God. And I tell you what, we had puny plans. He had a much, much, much bigger plan. In October of this year, this couple months ago, we sent a team from our Share Freedom Human Trafficking Ministry into the Mumbai Red Light District. Check out these ladies. These are the baddest ladies in the kingdom. They're going into one of the darkest red light districts in the world, but they're going into the darkest area of the red light district called the caged area, where the women are literally caged up. They're surrendered and yielded to the power of the Holy Spirit. With boldness, they declare the gospel in that context, this Muslim enclave, this place of deep darkness. And over 20 women gave their lives to Jesus. We no longer call this the caged area. We call it Freedom Street. Here's one of the ladies rescued, rescued and restored by the Hilltop of Hope community, and she's working on making the bags. 
She has a one-month-old, a one-month-old daughter. The, the father was her pimp, but now her and her daughter are rescued and restored as beloved daughters of the Most High God. Our team was there in October, was with her, and had the, the great joy to dedicate that little one-month-old baby to Jesus and to give her a new Christian name, Hannah, meaning grace of God. These are just some of the stories of his glory when we enter the spirit walk. The extraordinary people that make this look ordinary when the spirit is working in and through them. This is the church. How do you enter the spirit walk? Be part of the church. The church is the incubator of the spirit walk. All these pieces of the church work together by the Spirit to equip and release us for the work of the ministry. That means meet regularly for worship. Don't forsake the regular gathering together in worship. That means connect with a group of people living out the Bible in obedience. Get connected in a connect group. That means serve inside and outside the walls of the church. Give yourself away and discover your gifts as, that have been given to you by the Spirit as you give yourself away in service. I mean, share your life and the good news of Jesus in this region and to the nations and to the very ends of the earth. We have training and processes to help you in this journey. Uh, this missions magazine has been sent in the mail to everyone, and it's all over our wall racks. It has lots of detail about what I've talked about today. It has details of our three levels of gospel conversation training, to include the gospel conversation training level two, which is next Saturday at the Missouri City Campus, to include the three-hour spirit walk workshop. I can't do justice to the the, the, the the talk of a spirit walk, of what it means, what it means to be filled with the Spirit, how to remain in the Spirit, how to produce that fruit, what the, all that means from the Bible. I can't do that in 30-minute talk, but in this three-hour workshop, we can. This, this uh, magazine also details our mission trips locally and globally uh, for 2019. Seven teams going to Nepal, three teams to Mumbai, teams going all around the world. Some are family-oriented projects. You know, Jesus said, the Spirit of God is upon me. He's anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. The blind will see, the oppressed will be set free. I want to take one last look of the extraordinary work the Holy Spirit does when we surrender and yield to his control in our life. At Darrington Maximum Security Prison in Rose Sharon, we teach all the same principles that we teach in our gospel conversation training, the three levels of gospel conversation training. We teach all the same uh, principles and tools that we, that we prepare you when we send you on a short-term mission trip uh, locally and globally. We teach these at Darrington Maximum Security Prison, and they do it. They obey what the Spirit's leading them to do, and they produce fruit that lasts forever. I want you to look at Jesus' words that I just spoke a little bit ago, coming alive in this man, Jesus. Jesus has been in solitary confinement at Darrington for 18 years. He lives in a five-by-eight cement cell. The only light is ambient light that comes through the steel door with, through a little opening about that big. It's ambient light that comes out from the hallway. He has no human contact. He's in that cell for 23 hours a day, seven days a week, every day of his life for 18 years. Darkness inside of darkness. Let's look what the Spirit does, the Spirit of Jesus 
that sets us free, free indeed. The Holy Spirit delivers us from the drought. Rivers of life will bubble up and overflow from our being. Just watch this. Is it true that you've turned from sin, you turn to Jesus Christ to be the boss of your life? And you desire to worship him and to love him and to obey him all the days of your life? Well, that testimony, my brother, it is my great joy to baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Buried with Christ in baptism. Praise the The Spirit of Jesus lives in us. We live by the Spirit. Let us also walk in the Spirit, the Spirit walk. Let us pray. Before we pray, I want you to pray also for a special friend of our church, a great kingdom leader, Steve Smith, the author of the book Spirit Walk. Uh, he's an incredible great commission leader of, around the world. Uh, last, last October when he released the book, he was diagnosed with... Uh, a very rare form of liver cancer that's untreatable. Uh, 11 months is the average lifespan. He's already living uh, beyond that. And we're just praying. He asks us to pray for a miracle or something better. So let's also lift up our brother, Steve Smith. Oh, Abba, Father, we rejoice in you. You are holy, 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 and we praise you. That you're not far off, but you dwell within us, Lord God. And we praise you for the life, the body life of your church filled with your spirit, Lord Jesus Christ. Praise you for the, the marvelous breakthroughs locally and around the world that you're doing. We just, we just yield to you today, Lord God. Forgive us, forgive us for keeping control of things, Lord God, trying to do it by our might, by our power. But we ask today, Lord, we surrender and yield to your spirit in our life, Lord Jesus Christ. We ask you, Lord, if you can use anybody, use me. Use me as an instrument of your love and your fame and your glory. Lord, we lift up to you our brother Steve Smith, his wife Laura. We ask that you pour out your miraculous healing power upon him. In the very name of Jesus, we pray this. We ask, Lord God, that you would do a miracle or something even greater, that you would extend his days, that your fame would be and your exaltation would go to the nations and hasten the day of your return. So, Father, we praise you for the Spirit working in and through us, Lord. The Spirit and the bride say, come back, Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus Christ. But until you come, empower us to be the instruments of your love and your life in this day and in this generation. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.